Welcome to episode 6 of What Would Jeeves Do? Coming to you from New York City. And oh, never forget what a friend you have in me. This is episode 6, and it's a special episode. Because, as promised, we have a terrific guest. His name is Alex Treadway. And we covered a lot of topics in this one life, work, but mostly it was about his decision to move to Washington, D.C. at the ripe old age of 15. He got up and managed to plant himself in a tough city. It's a tough city to make it in, from New Orleans to the nation's capital, and he's been there ever since. We met when I worked down there as a journalist, and we go way back. And in the episode, we talk about his credentials. They're very interesting. And I think all you really need to know is that he had a lot of excellent and useful insight. And he's a person that I think walks the walk. And he's lived it right. So buckle up for this one. This is my good friend, Alex Treadway. All right. And we're here with... uh... Like I said last week, a special guest. This is someone that I came up with when I was, uh, well, he's a little older than me, but when I was an intern at the Daily Caller, he was someone that definitely <laughs> made a, a huge impact on me, and that's Alex Treadway. And he was vice president and a chief operating officer uh, at the Daily Caller, and then he moved over to the Washington Post. He was vice president of uh, government and executive media group, and now he's an associate publisher, Route 50, and my good friend, Alex. Good to have you on the show, man. I'm glad you came on. Thanks, Nick. I've actually been listening to a few of your older episodes to see uh, who you've been talking to, the folks like Tucker and Matt Lewis. And I I have a feeling that uh, it's a little different because these are the guys who are in front of the camera or uh, Matt has his own podcast. I I, I think I'm more like if this were the Lion King one and a half, (laughs) I'd be the Timon and Pumbaa in the background well, no uh, way. For the the Lion King story, you know. You were the you gotta you gotta respect the behind the scenes though of the media, <laughs> and that and that Matt, myself, and Tucker, uh, you were there at a lot of those funny moments, and you were telling jokes sure. and, and making us laugh and coming up with tips, and yeah. so I, I think you're just as cool of an interview man, in my opinion. So I hope my, well, I think my audience will agree. Yeah. A lot of behind the scenes people in Washington. I I am one of those people. I'm a behind the scenes guy. Definitely not the front of the camera guy. It's a weird city, isn't it? And maybe we can start with that, because when I moved there, you had already lived there a while, and, and it's uh, it's small, but it's big, if that makes any sense. You know what I mean? No, no, it really is. I, I work with people that I've worked with on and off through multiple careers over the last 20 or so years. That's why, in my opinion, you really always have to be nice to people. You never know if they're going to be your boss, your client, your friend for life. You really just need to... Be yourself and be a decent person. Yes. Always collect favors. You know, always try to help each other out. You know, I've, I've seen it. By well, people I don't know ask. about the collecting favors. I, I think you do it because you're just supposed to be a nice person. Well, that, that's <laughs> the, we're setting the bar way higher. We're, we're trying to talk to the average folk here. You know, this, they, they got to go a little lower than that. But no, I, I, I remember when we were in D.C. together and I was an intern at the Daily Caller. And the first time I met you. Uh, they had a program called From Here to There, 
for the interns. Yeah. And it's how I met Matt Lewis, too. And we'd come in, yeah. sit down in the conference room, and you and others would get up at the front of the room, and you would tell us how you made it, you know, from where you started to, to where you are. And I, I just thought what you had to say was, was amazing. You gave great advice. You were real. You never talked down to us. I mean, how, what did it feel like being up there at the front of the room? Well, you know, us? it's funny. That, that was actually a program that was my idea because – at the Daily Caller, at any given time, you had 10 to 25 interns. And while they were not being paid, they were getting this extraordinary experience about really writing and doing the work. But what I began to notice was that these were anywhere from freshman, sophomore, junior level college students. And every one of them was really concerned about that first step that they have to make right out of college. That, what is the first thing they have to do? And they want to make sure they got it right. And so my goal, and it was actually, I wanted to call those sessions from there to here, was that every single person at the Daily Caller who was not an intern would sit there and say, these are all the different jobs I've done since I was where you are there to hear where I am so that people could see there's no straight path. You know, there's this really crooked road that people have taken to get to where they are at that moment. And one of the things that always used to amuse me is that Half the time, Tucker would meet with the interns and he'd tell them, you know, as soon as you know what you want to do, quit school, get married to your high school sweetheart, have four kids <laughs> and buy a house you can't possibly afford and everything else will work itself out. <laughs> I used to I used to follow him and say, please don't quit school. Please don't do that. You're, you know, please continue doing what you do. And um, but for me, the sessions were really about trying to help people realize that. There is no easy path. The first thing you do out of college doesn't have to be perfect. Just take one step after the next and your path will work out. And that was my goal. That was just to, to give people something for all their hard work and give them some help that would demystify that first step. Um, one of my favorites was that for somehow uh, Matt Lewis and I for years ended up doing it as a joint uh team where he would go first and I would go second. And it was always great to hear Matt's story and then, uh, then get to follow him up too. So I had a ball doing that for years. And you were good to us, man. I got to tell you in this business and in life, not just in DC or in this business, a lot, a lot of jerks, a lot of people that will feel bothered by you asking questions or coming for, to advice, you know, and asking for, for tips, you would come in and give us books that you had like freebie giveaways, you'd give us like Girl Scout cookies, you'd ask us how we were doing, you'd be like, hey, how are you guys doing today? You need any help? Blah, blah. That that really made an imprint on a lot of people. And I got to ask, how, how do you stay positive, man? That, that You were always so positive, or at least trying to be. How, how do you well, do it? One of the reasons is that, yeah, I think positivity is a choice. But I'm going to also throw a little credit in another direction. I have two daughters, speaking of the Girl Scout cookies, so every year I had to sell Girl Scout cookies. And I don't think most people know this, but every year Tucker would give me $150 for Girl Scout cookies. And then he didn't want to eat them, and he didn't want them to come home so he'd eat them. So I gave all those cookies to all the interns because Tucker had purchased them from my daughters. Nice. And then – no, and then I wanted Matt Lewis's wife – would purchase another hundred dollar box uh, boxes of cookies for my daughters. Uh, speaking of two great people, totally. And my my daughters every year ended up selling the most from their group, and it has a lot to do with Tucker and and Matt Lewis and his wife. So um, 
I want to give credit where credit is due. All right, so we'll those freebies, freebies I was giving you <laughs> were actually thanks to other folks. Um, I think positivity is a choice. I, I think you can walk in in the morning and you can, uh, you can change the direction of your day by choosing to focus on the positive. I like that. It's rare because that's what you would do. And there were days where I would come in and I'd be feeling really low. And a lot of people don't usually admit you know, how they're feeling at work, and that's usually a good thing. But you had your door open. And whenever I wanted to come in and be like, man, this day sucks or you know, this is terrible, or you'd say – I think I asked you once, I was like, why do I even bother? And it was kind of rhetorical. And you jumped back in and you said, you bother and you would go through life and you work through it for that one moment, for that one connection, yeah. for that payoff. Yeah. And I never forgot that, yeah. Alex. So I want you to know your words carried weight, man. Wow. You know, one of those was fun is that every time I had one of those from there to here sessions and I would tell all the interns and said, you know, link in with people, ask them for coffee, ask yes. them for advice. And uh, out of each group, maybe 25 students, maybe two people would take me up on that. And my theory is that as an older person, if you're not remembering what it was like to be in college and try to find your way, and if you're not willing to give someone a cup of coffee and some good free advice or some connections, then you've forgotten. And you do, you've gotten old and cold, and there's no reason to be that way. Everybody comes through this path. Everybody needs a little help. And if you've forgotten it, you know, that's shame on you. So what I loved about the intern class from your group is that you, without hesitation, took me up on that. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and what I found out was, you know, as you mentioned, I'm a little bit older, but somehow or another you're an old soul. You knew all the movies that I knew. You knew all the stories <laughs> and the lines I had. So. Uh, there just was a there was this click there was this connection and I thought this guy's the real deal and I'll 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 go it, you know overboard to help this guy so Dude, the it was just it was just uh it was a click it was something hit and it was so, uh, I just we connected. I just respected your knowledge you, you you were the real deal oh dude thank you and you were too and I think that's why we connected and like I I remember you were always you always had something funny to say, man, and you were definitely very business and very, you know, like you're very, very moderate at times. But then there would be this moment where you just go off on a tangent and say something completely hilarious. But I got to thank you for that. I wanted to thank you on the record for, for making wow. the days easier. But um, now you have an interesting story. You, from a young age, knew of the of the swamp. You came up to D.C. Well, by way of the South. Tell me a little bit about how that came to be. I grew up in New Orleans and uh... – when I was a teenager, I was living in New Orleans, and uh, my mom and dad were, uh, you know, having a little bit of a custody battle where my dad wanted me to live with him in North Carolina, and my mom wanted me to stay in New Orleans. And I think I was about 15, and I came up with the idea that I thought the best way to solve this would be to not live with either of them. So I went to my, my guidance counselor at, at De La Salle High School, Father Peter, and sat down and said, shy of military academy, how do we work this out? And I think we spent months coming up with a plan. And then eventually it occurred to me, they're those kids who work in Congress. Well, you know, how hard can that be? And I didn't realize that it really is hard. And he and I started sitting down and composing letters and writing to every one of the congressmen in Louisiana. And only one of them at that moment could appoint me. And my letter came in right at a moment where everyone had stopped asking him and he just said, what the heck? And he uh, he appointed me uh, to come up here and, and be a page in Congress. And uh, it's kind of like running away to the circus in a way. <laughs> yes. uh, it, 
And it, it wasn't because I liked government. I, I didn't know anything about government or history or Congress. This was my way out. And uh, it wasn't until I got here and started working in Congress that I, you know, fell in love with not the swamp, but the, me- the, the machinery, the, the way that people come here. And, you know, everybody wants to say a negative story about Washington. There are 535 people who are members of Congress and senators. And you may hear one or two stories about people who are doing bad things. Well, that means that there are 533 other people you're not focusing on who are working long hours and actually attempting to do something meaningful. And then if you you give each one of those people 10 to 20 staff people also working long hours, there are a lot of people um, trying to do something positive. So I, I think I fell in love with that. Do you ever, did you ever miss home when you were in DC? I mean, you left, you were young. How did it feel being, yeah. you know, 15 years old, that even 18, you'd feel, yeah. I think a little scared. Well, what did that feel like? Not at all. When I got here at 16 years old, there are these, the, the pages are really kids who have all left home and really in a way become a family. There, there was, it, it, when I was a page, there were no dorms. There was no supervision. There was nothing to prevent kids from going crazy except the work. And I think, I mean, when I first came here, we, people were living in boarding houses, literally like something out of Dickens. And, um, you really banded together to uh, survive in the city at the time. And the main thing you did every day was work. And so, you know, there, in the old days, there was a school in the attic of the Library of Congress that educated the pages from six in the morning to 945. And then you worked. And um, the real reason I was here was to do the job. And I spent a year working in the cloakroom right off the house floor. And then I spent a year working for the speaker of the house. And I learned a lot about how the system is built and how the machinery operates. And I, that, that's the part I really enjoyed. So when you're behind the scenes, a lot, some people today say, Hey, they'll fight each other, the left and the right on television. But like, you know, behind the scenes, they're they're really they're friends. Like they'll, they'll golf, they'll eat lunch together, they'll kind of shake hands at the end of the day. Um, uh, was, was that a reality? Was that how it really that, goes? That or? that really was a reality then, and actually, I don't really think it is reality now. I think that may be one of the really odd things of the way Congress is now. Uh, when I was here as a teenager, the Speaker of the House was a gentleman named Tip O'Neill, and his best personal friend in the world in Washington was a Republican named Silvio Conti. And I don't, I'm willing to bet you the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, may not spend any time with a Republican member, um, or, or certainly not, you know, whining and dining and enjoying this other party. I don't think they know each other. I don't think they like each other. And I think that makes it a lot easier to not compromise and not you know, when you don't know your opponent, it makes it easier for you to dislike them and not work with them. That's, I think that's, that's, that's one of the failings of the town today is that I don't think people are approaching it with quite the same um, open spirit. 
I agree. I think it's uh, it's definitely more divided than it was. But the city's always been crazy. I mean, there's always been – not even just Congress itself, but in the outskirts of the city and even parts of Virginia, it's always been an insane uh, backdrop. But tell me, <laughs> what was the craziest thing you experienced on the streets? You must have gone out drinking, gone out to dinner after work. There must have been some, some insanity going on back then. Oh, you see it, it, any it stories? was the, – well, D.C. was a much different city, and these were – Again, these are kids without parental supervision or, or uh, adult supervision. I mean, and, and while I say there were stories and crazy parties and there were, I mean, we did stupid things like in the summertime, we would, it was hot. So the pages used to go and find fountains and jump in fountains. And uh, just because it was hot and these were these cool fountains all over town. Um, uh, you know, I, I, there was a bad crime rate in DC in those days. And, um, a friend of mine who ended up becoming uh, recently ambassador to uh, Lebanon uh, was mugged. Uh, and then about a month later, right there in front of where the, the girls all lived, I was mugged with a girl page. And then about a month later, uh, the one of the minority lead, leadership, I think it was uh, Bob Michael, was mugged almost exactly where I was mugged. And they put a policeman on the spot where I was mugged. And the oh policeman God. was mugged. And they took his gun and his billy club and they handcuffed him to this fence right near where the girls lived. And so for the longest time, there was a policeman sitting in a cop car right in the spot where I was mugged until I want to say the heart building was uh, opened and that whole area got a little fancier. But it yeah. was a it was a bit of a rough time. It's the Wild West in Washington in those days. So then looking back now, because you, you worked in, in that capacity and then eventually you found your way to, to media. How, how did that yeah. switch happen where you did all this kind of Washingtonian stuff? And then, you know, what, what happened after that? to get oh, you into media? Well, the switch happened even before that. I remember I, I finished college and I came back to Washington and I was doing something called close up where I was one of the close up instructors where you teach kids about Washington close up. And I was doing this job and it, it ended as a normal part of the session ended. And my dad kept saying that, you know, your resume looks like a, communist insurrectionist. You need to do something more grounded in business. And I said, like what? He said, you know, like banking. And so I thought, well, you know, I don't know anyone in banking. He goes, well, I, I know these people in Baltimore. I'll, I'll get you an interview with these people. And I met some really nice people in a bank in Baltimore, and they offered me the opportunity to be in a bank management training program. And then my dad put on the hardcore pressure for me to do it. So I thought, I'm going to do this to make my dad proud. And I went into this bank training program and then they promoted me and I was a bank manager. And then the next thing you know, they promoted me and I was another bank manager. And then at a certain point I got promoted into something called cash management. And it's it, almost like that song uh, for the talking heads, you know, well, how did I get here? But uh, 12 years goes by and I'm in banking. And at a certain point you've got to say to yourself, well, I guess I am a banker. And um, I, I couldn't do that. I just kept thinking I'm a person who works in banking. And I was living in Washington, and I wasn't doing anything related to Washington. And, you know, 12 years in banking, just to make your dad proud, people serve left time, less time in prison for murder. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, that's one of the reasons why I think I talk to young people about their jobs, is that you shouldn't do a job just to make your parents proud. You should do something that you want to do, that you love doing. And if you're doing something really that you love, eventually your parents are going to come around and be proud of you. So um, that's one of the reasons why I love 
talking to young people at the start of their careers because literally 12 years in banking, you got to be kidding me. Um, Kill me. Oh, it's like almost, (laughs) yeah, it's almost half your life, right? So, uh, um, so I uh, switched into this wonderful career uh, with, uh, it was legislative intelligence. It was a, a, a great company called Legislate that tracked how Congress worked and uh, helped people figure out what bills were passing. And oddly enough, in uh, June of 1999, this company was afraid that its mainframe wouldn't survive Y2K. Honestly, this is they, so they shut down this whole company and sold off different pieces of it. And everybody was laid off in June of 1999. It was the go-go-90 economy. And the next day, I was offered an opportunity to go into advertising. And I um, with a little company called National Journal. And I ended up being one of the first people in town selling online advertising at a nonpartisan publication called National Journal. It was the dawn of time and the dawn of advertising. So I took it. I had a ball. And so I swapped into advertising. But what I've done in the last 20 years or so is stayed focused on advertising that relates to publication that has to do with how things work in Washington, whether it was National Journal or Helping Tucker launch Daily Caller or working at the Washington Post or now at Government Executive Media Group. It's it's publications focused on the public sector, on what happens in government. So I get to watch the incredible game and watch the machinery, but not be in it. You know, it's like you, you're a journalist, you get to watch it and see it, mm-hmm. but you're on the sidelines, enjoying the machinery, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. You're you're a spectator, but you're also kind of there to you know tell other people about what's going on. And I, I think you definitely oh. did that as well in your career. Well, I totally get plausible deniability. My family in Louisiana blame me and call me a media <laughs> elite, and I have to say, a media elite. It's like never thought of advertising. That. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know about that. Not advertising. I'm, yeah, hard. You know, I don't write a word. It's you've not met, my fault, people. You met a couple of media elites, though, didn't you? You have a couple of funny stories that you've met some famous uh, media people in your past or some famous faces uh, in Washington. Well, I, I, you know, I've had a wonderful ride. I, you know, I think maybe I'm just a storyteller but at heart, but I've met some really great people. You know, it's funny. You know, you've on the show, you talk about folks like Matt and you talk with folks like Tucker. And you know this, you go out in the real world now and, and just walk down the street with Tucker and people definitely have their opinions about this guy. And what they just don't realize and what you said in your podcast about Tucker is he's such a normal person that is not at all like this thing people build up in their minds. He's, a, he's married to his high school sweetheart. She's one of the nicest people in the country. Um, I think when people watch television, they lose that perspective that this is a real person they're talking to. Uh, and people have their feelings about the politics of it, and they get all angry, you know. And my answer is, this is a real person. This is, you know, yes, he's a television personality, but he's actually real and normal, and lives his life and has kids. And I think maybe it's because I've been watching the machinery that I just don't get caught up, and I, I don't care what someone says. It, it's um, in reality, you have to deal with who they are as people, and. I've worked with so many interesting people, but at all the time I've ever known someone like Tucker, the man's never lied to me a single time once. And that counts for something. And that's how when someone asks me, how do you defend Tucker? And my answer is, I don't know. How do I defend my older brother? He and I don't believe 
on anything politically, but I still love him. He's my brother. Because it's, it's genuine, right? These are genuine people, and that's why right. we're, we're drawn to them. Right. I mean, that's why I hang out with you and Matt, you said Matt Lewis and you cite Tucker. Absolutely. I was tired of the bullshit. I'm going to be honest. You know, I, I would yeah. run into people, and they, they smile to your face, and they stab you in the back. Or right. they, they traffic yeah. in something that is not useful, or it's, it's, it's fake. Right. It's phony. And like you said, you, Tucker, Matt, even myself, I think we all clicked because we were all just tired of the bullshit. It was easier to yeah. let it fall away and say, hey, how is your day going? My day's going a little shitty, but, you know, I'm hanging in there. Like, it right. was just no no facade. And, yeah, I, I think that was one of the best parts of, of being down there and meeting all of you was actually knowing that there's still some people left in the game that are and, and w- willing to tell the truth. There are a lot left. I mean, there are some really great ones. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I spent some time over the Washington Post and uh, people would ask the question, you know, how can you how can someone work in the Daily Caller and work in the Washington Post? And my answer is because, again, I'm not writing content. Yes. You, my political beliefs are irrelevant. My, I sell advertising. So when I was at the, you know, the Daily Caller, I would ask people who they want to reach in their advertising, if someone said liberals, when I was in the Daily Caller, I would point them to a friend of mine who was selling ads for the Huffington Post. If, you know, the goal was to always help the clients and to stay focused on what they need, not what I need, but what the client needs. Um, when I went to the Washington Post, I, you know, the audience reach when I was there was both liberals and conservatives. It grew so much. So I could help people very strategically target whoever they needed. And it isn't about my politics. How I feel is irrelevant, and I'm a business person, and uh, I think that's halfway why I can be friends with people who are so diametrically opposed to each other politically, because it's it's not my job in serving others to have my politics flow through. It's my job to help other people get what they need done, and I think that has allowed me to sort of stand back and enjoy the people at each place who are writing and working hard to make the best publication. And at the Washington Post, there are journalists who are busting their butt to write amazing things. At the Daily Caller, there are young journalists who are just, you know, as you did, working really hard to put out information that is really important to be put out there. And so I've always gone through this by just doing my work to allow people to do their jobs, if that makes sense. It does, because, I mean, we had, there are different sectors, you know, in media. If you're not part of the editorial, it's a completely different world, the business aspect, totally. the advertising aspect. It's almost, it's, oh. it's separated, you know, you're in different parts of the building usually even. So. Oh, it's, it's very different. When I worked at the Washington Post, there's Marty Barron is the editor of the Washington Post. So if you've ever seen the movie, Called Spotlight. Spotlight with yeah oh yeah the the Liev Schreiber character is very accurate. Marty is scary, and you know <laughs> I, 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 I'm a tall guy and Marty's not a very tall guy, but he scared the daylights out of me. And I'd be in meetings with him once a month for about eight months, where he never even spoke in my direction. He never mentioned a thing that I spoke on. Never touched on a topic that I was talking about because I'm on the business side. He's the editorial side. And, mm-hmm. I remember once I was riding up in an elevator with Marty and all these journalists were on the elevator and he, you know, didn't say anything to me. And at a, one point, it's just the two of us still riding on the same elevator. So he goes, Alex, how's it going? So I'm thinking, so he knows my name. He's just never going to speak to me. 
in front of other journalists because I'm a, <laughs> I'm a dirty businessman, you know? And so he is just one of those people who is so pure in this editorial vision that a business guy was never going to influence him. And, you know, people talk about uh, betting Jeff Bezos tells the post what to write. And my thought was, I don't care how rich Jeff Bezos is. Nobody has enough guts to tell Marty Baron what to do. That's just not happening. Yeah. He's, he's as frightening as Liev Shriver plays him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so my thought is there are people like that who have extraordinary integrity and are doing their jobs here in Washington. People don't want to believe that, but it's true. They're, they're, you know it. There are people here who are putting everything they've got into what they do. Yes, there is a contingency. I will, if I allow myself to be sentimental about my time in D.C., there definitely is a contingent of people that are that do mean it and they want to change things. Sure. They, they want to change the world for the better. And uh, what, what do you think you would have been doing if you didn't go there? If you stayed in Louisiana, what does Alex Treadway, a resident of New Orleans, look like? Oh Lord, you know, <laughs> drunk. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I really love going home to New Orleans. And if someone said to me tomorrow, you know, hey, you've only got six months to live. Man, I would love to spend those six months in New Orleans, surrounded by family and some of the best food and, and booze you can buy anywhere in the planet. But it would be hard to imagine living there. I never could figure out what I could do for living there. So the moment I could, you know, get back out of town after school, I was back up here figuring out how to pay for an apartment and finding somebody to marry me and, and get on with life. I, it just never occurred to me that I would do it there. But again, if you told me I had to, six months to live, boy, that's the first place I'd want to spend some time. What did you tell me about New Orleans? It was a great place, not a great place to live, but a, but a, great, great, place to... a, great, a great place to die. <laughs> great place uh, to die. <laughs> so That sounds it, like a crappy Bond movie. <laughs> Well, it does. It does. You know, I was thinking recently, uh, talking about, you know, thinking about you and thinking about stories. Um, I, one of the things I think I always look for in my stories, though, and I think I may have said it to you, is I always look for the angels. And um, I, I was thinking recently because Danny Aiello died this week. I saw that. And I, I remember in, the, in one of the movies you and I have talked about before, Jacob's Ladder, that Danny Aiello actually plays a part in the movie as sort of this angel figure. And um, and that's something I think I always do when I look at backward in stories or I look backward in life. I always look for the angels and the people that show up in your life that you weren't expecting but shine a little light. You know, like oh, my friend Nick, uh, you oh, know, and dude. maybe a few others. That, but for me, I've been sitting there saying for years, look for the angels. Now I realized I think I stole a phrase from Mr. Rogers, or maybe Mr. Rogers' <laughs> mom, who always said, look for the helpers. And I, I don't oh. think that's, yeah, so hey, I give Mr. Rogers a little too. shout out there. <laughs> yeah, but to me, when I look through life, I look through stories, I think I'm always looking for the angels. And, um, you, and you know, they, they're all around us. And I've been so lucky to have a life filled with people who stepped up and filled that role. And um, I think you have too, so. Oh, dude, I've. Listen, I learned, and I'll tell you this, and then we'll wrap up on this before I give you the last word on, on this. I, when I came to Daily Caller, uh, I'm going to get into it a little later with my, my listeners in details, but I went through a lot in my time coming in and out as an intern and then as a full-time you know, fellow and reporter. And a lot of you were there, and a lot of you saw that, and a lot of you helped pick me up and carried me. And that, that allowed me to see the world a different way and to try to help other people and to you know, 
feel the way I do. So, uh, you know, you guys can take a little credit for that. So it's, it's not just me or, or what I do, but it's my angels, you guys, you know, Tucker, Matt, yourself, and, and a few others that really kept me afloat. So, you know, I, can't uh, take, I, I think can't there's something there. I think one of the things that you always uh, don't give yourself credit for is the fact that you're such a real person. You did the work. You make it. Um, it's real easy to want to help someone you already really like. Oh, dude. Well, thank you for that, man, because I, I loved you guys. I mean, you, you, I never knew it existed. Like, I, when I saw that world and what you guys had created and how you acted and how you presented yourselves and, and the, the truth, like you said, it was, there was no lying, there was no, no facade, no mask. I didn't know yeah. that still existed. So well, that's, you know, it's two-way street. It's, it's just one of the ways that I stay positive, you just – in any day that you're in, if you could do something nice for somebody else, you just your day ends up being better. So, it's, again, look for those angels. They're all around us. And for me, it is uh, what good deed can I do today? And I feel 10 times better at the end of the day knowing I've been there. So um, I'm always there for you, brother. Oh, dude, Alex, well, I can't think of a better, a better line to end on. But I will say this, man. You're one of the most interesting, uh, fascinating, upbeat, coolest people I've ever met and I'm happy that we got to persevere long enough to where I could interview you and share that relationship with, with our listeners. So dude, well, thank you, thank Alex. You. You're the man, dude. I'll never forget you. I'm always going to be there for you. And I, I think, I think I know that you'll always be there for me. <laughs> nice. Well, won't you be my neighbor? <laughs> won't you be, won't you be my, my good friend? Well, Alex, thank you, again, Fred man. Rogers. <laughs> Mr. Rogers, Mr. Shredway, we should do a show. There, there you, you go. go. Next next podcast, when we have you back on, we'll do you in character as Mr. Treadway. <laughs> and you can come in wearing the sweater, like the you know the like the Robin's blue sweater, and and Robin's like, we'll have, uh, we'll have some puppet, like a Tucker puppet, come and talk to you. And I think that'd be a hit. Oh my lord! Either that, or they'll put me in yeah, a mental institution quickly. So call your buddies. Yeah. They can they can stream it on Amazon. <laughs> 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 Till next time, my friend. You're the best. Thank you, Nick. Thanks. Take care. There's one thing, and I want to just quickly say this before I offer my take on what I would have done in Alex's shoes, or rather what I would have done differently. But Alex's work is one thing that I think speaks volumes about him. He spoke about the one moment. I think that was a beautiful way of looking at life. I mean, think about it. If you're going through a difficult time and, you know, you've struck out a couple of times and then you just think to yourself and remember that it could all come down to this one amazing moment at any time that can turn everything for the better. And that's usually how life is, you know. If you hang in long enough, good things happen. And I think that was a great message on his part. His gratitude and sense of grace was amazing. He knew people. He knew how to talk to them. He knew how to treat them. And furthermore, he had a very giving willingness to give advice and to pay it forward. And his resiliency was phenomenal. He was always blunt. I love that about him. He... Someone would be trying to shape the truth or put it their own way or package it a certain way. And he would just speak out out of nowhere and just be extremely blunt. 
he'd be like, try, you can try shaping it, molding it, but the truth is the truth. Like, this is the way it is. And that took balls. That took, like, moxie to say certain things that he did at certain moments. And for the most part, I think it benefited him because he was successful. And that internship class that he mentioned when I was there and some people after, he shepherded them through their careers as young journalists. And now they're on television and writing across the country. He had a big hand in that. And I think that should be recognized as well. That there are so many people behind the scenes who shape these leaders in all kinds of industries, but media was Alex's and political operations and you know political thought. And he was good at what he did. When he spoke, his wisdom never steered me wrong. And I'll always be thankful for that. So I thank you to Alex before I give my take. Now, would I go to D.C. at 15? No. I don't think I could have done it. I think it would have been too much of a shock for me personally. And I got to say, I credit Alex for at 15 <clears throat> being able to go out and plant himself in Washington. That's impressive. You know, I, I did that at 20, 23 or 24. It was tough. It took years, years to plant myself in Washington and get established and, you know, write and be successful and try to have a career. Hours of networking, all kinds of crap, stuff you wouldn't believe. But he went through a lot of it too during like the cracked out 70s and 80s where he got mugged twice. That's crazy. But I'm glad he did. I'm glad he made the journey as a teenager because if he didn't, we wouldn't have him as a resource. He was so good at what he did and he taught very well. He was easy to understand. He was friendly. The door was always open. Amazing. You know, you can't really ask for much more in a mentor or an ally. If you showed up and you busted your ass and you cared, Alex helped you in some way. And not a lot of people do that, or not everyone does that, I should say, especially in media. And it's a, it's a very... I think, sacred thing to be involved in the press. And when you're involved in shaping the people who are going to go out and be involved in telling the truth and telling people's stories, I would take it seriously. And Alex did. Always. He set, I think, a great example. And he worked at all kinds of places for all kinds of people, some famous, some not. He helped build the company. He always stayed loyal to his friends. He was always true, and he's a good man. And I'm glad that we had him on because I think he brings us a lot of wisdom and insight that we wouldn't get anywhere else. And I'm honored that he came on. So another thank you to him.
and a quick preview two weeks from now. We're hoping to have Ben Carson. HUD says his secretary, or his, rather his schedule, uh, Secretary Carson's schedule jumps around a little bit. So we're going to hope uh, that he can make it on in two weeks. But if he can't, we have Jason Redman, who said he's coming on. He is an awesome Navy SEAL that I interviewed. This guy's had 37 surgeries, and he came back from it. And he's still kicking ass today, writing books, pumping up troops. And, man, you want to talk about keeping it going, the one moment. Man, this guy, his, uh, his motto is lead always, uh, overcome all. Lead always and overcome all. Amazing stuff. So I'm excited to get into that with you all next week if Ben Carson does not uh, have the time to join us. But either way, it'll be good. So we will see you in two weeks. Thank you for tuning in. And always remember to ask yourself, what would Jesus do?